Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. As some of you might know, since I have mentioned this in past episodes, I grew up in Mexico City, Mexico. From age 2 through 18 or 19, from basically preschool through high school. Though I am not a Mexican citizen, Mexico was part of my formative years, and I feel, from a cultural perspective, as Mexican as I feel American. On Thursday, September 19th, 1985, I woke up and, as with every other day, began my morning routine, preparing myself, assembling the school books, timing everything right to catch the school bus that would take me to the American School Foundation. I had just started the 10th grade. I remember it being a cool, crisp morning. I loved those mornings because that cool air made me feel alive, made me feel alert. And I remember it being a gray morning also. It was, a, it was common for cloud cover to hang around and block out the sun since this is a city that is nestled between mountain ranges, and those mountains tended to trap clouds and pollution within that bowl it created. I left the apartment, walked a short block to the stop on the corner of Masaric and Torcuato Tasso in the neighborhood, or colonia, of Polanco. The bus picked me up, I slid into a seat and started chatting with a friend who sat behind me my knees up on the seat, my torso twisted to face him. We had probably moved a couple of blocks and the bus stopped to pick up someone else at the next stop. As I was talking to my friend, I became aware that the bus began to rock from side to side. It was not a gradual swaying. It was abrupt. It was sudden. And I remember thinking that someone very heavy must be going up the bus steps. So I turned forward to see, but Wait, I knew the person who stopped this was. She was not heavy. Books and backpacks and pens and pencils just started spilling all over the floor of the bus. I looked out the window and, you know, it's been over 30 years and I only remember expressionistic fragments. But I remember seeing the telephone and electricity poles on the streets swinging wildly like metronomes. I remember seeing puffy clouds of pink and gray dust sprouting out of buildings as if they suddenly became locomotives. I remember seeing the mother of the girl who had just boarded the bus crouching on the street just outside the bus, half protecting her head and half protecting the small dog that had nestled underneath her between her knees. Inside the bus, no one made a sound. The only thing we could all hear was a rumbling Not necessarily a constant roar, it had a a wave-like, percussive presence. It was 7.19 a.m., and that earthquake, which registered 8.1 on the Richter scale, lasted about four minutes. Four minutes. At the tail end of that earthquake, I was disoriented. The, The bus still seemed to be swaying. But I was not sure whether the earthquake was still going on, or whether this was some type of leftover inertia, or whether my brain was still processing the event, a type of vertigo maybe. Once it was clear that the earthquake was over, our bus driver stepped outside and had a brief chat with the girl's mother. Then he went back inside, closed the door, and continued our route. 
You see, earthquakes in Mexico City, though infrequent, are not that rare. In the past, people would simply experience them, take stock of the situation, and move on. So we moved on. As we neared the school, we really could hear the wailing of ambulances around us. We could see plumes of smoke in other parts of the city, and we could see people outside scurrying at a faster pace. Once we got to our school, got off the bus, and filed into our classrooms for first period, we were told by our teachers to go back to the bus pickup and drop-off area as if it were the end of the school day and head back home. Most of us were in the dark as to the severity of what had just happened. Some of us had portable radios or a Walkman with AM/FM radio, and rumors began circulating. So we went home, trying to find out what happened by watching TV and listening to the radio that day was chaotic. I mean, for one, most of us lost our electricity, and to make matters worse, the major television network of the country, Televisa, was one of the building complexes that suffered tremendous damage. With a ten-ton antenna bending and collapsing onto the building and killing some members of the popular morning news program, Oi Mismo. Though I was not home to watch the live telecast of Oi Mismo while the earthquake hit, it has become iconic footage for those of us who lived through the experience. Three newscasters, Maria Victoria Llamas, Lourdes Guerrero, and Juan Dosal. Sitting at their news desks, suddenly interrupted by the violent shaking, Lourdes Guerrero smiling nervously and suddenly stating, "Ay, Chihuahua." About 420 buildings were completely destroyed by the quake. 3,000 buildings had to be demolished, and 100,000 of the 1.4 million buildings in the city had been significantly damaged. Depending on who you ask, anywhere between 5,000 to 45,000 people were killed by that earthquake. 250,000 left homeless. School was canceled the day after, and for several days after that. The day after the quake, an aftershock hit us late in the evening. My mother pulled me under a doorframe, candle in hand, since the power had not returned yet. This aftershock was a 7.5 on the Richter scale. 7.5. I think we lost patience after a while and decided to risk it. We ran down the three flights of stairs of our apartment building, spilled onto the streets like bats out of hell. Aftershocks still going on, watching street lamps and yeah, buildings swaying around us. Then it stopped. We became suddenly aware of all the people on the streets, and a low murmur filled the air as people started walking back into their homes. I want to talk about this defining experience in my life by focusing on two ways I process what had just happened. During those days away from school. I decided to walk the streets of Mexico City with my 35 millimeter film camera in hand, and I decided to to dust off my disused CB radio and listen to the city. 
I had a Nikon FE2 camera. My gang of friends had two significant passions around this time: one, Dungeons and Dragons, and two, photography. We all had our 35 millimeter film cameras and spent too much time comparing and evaluating the merits of Canon versus Nikon versus Pentax and so on. To my credit, the major benefit of my Nikon FE2 was its amazingly fast shutter speed of one four thousandths of a second and a pretty fast 50 millimeter f 1.4 lens. That said, as I hit the streets with that camera and loads of film, that fast shutter speed was not particularly important given what I would be shooting. And by the way, in retrospect, I think it was amazing of my mother to raise me in an environment where I had the freedom to hit the streets on my own. Even after a major disaster, and experience its aftermath firsthand, I'm not so sure that that kind of laissez-faire approach is too popular nowadays. Really, so off I went. I decided to explore two major boroughs of the city: the Delegación Cuauhtémoc and the Delegación Benito Juárez. And I followed a primary avenue that cuts through both of them: Avenida Insurgentes. I zigzagged my way through the neighborhoods in that area through La Condesa, Doctores, Narvarte, Del Valle, and so on. I was expecting to smell smoke, to smell dust and concrete, but I was I was naive, and I really had not expected the smell of corpses. If the wind blew a certain way, blew from a certain direction, it was unmistakable. Because of the magnitude of the destruction and the chaos, not all of those sectors were cordoned off, and they weren't protected from pedestrian access. So I could walk near crumbled, pancaked buildings, near twisted metal, smoking rubble, shattered glass. Way before the earthquake struck, I was a city walker and a metro riding enthusiast. I knew these neighborhoods and these buildings. Had passed by them a lot, and had probably walked into their street-level stores to buy discos, tortas, and refrescos. At points, I did reach a major rescue operation that was well organized and cordoned off, and could only witness at a distance the, the arduous, seemingly fruitless task of removing mangled steel and concrete, seeking for survivors, dogs sniffing through the detritus. Organizers asking for occasional silence, hoping to hear any survivors. A couple of years before the earthquake. During a trip to Houston, Texas, my mother gave in to my incessant demands and bought me a Cobra CB radio unit. Before the earthquake, I used it in Texas to listen and talk to truckers, scratching my head at their secret language and giggling at the obscenities. But in Mexico City, I had stored it away and rarely used it. During the week after the earthquake, I spent my time up on the roof of our apartment building. I climbed up the metal ladder. That led to the water tank at the uppermost platform of the building, and attached a magnetic CB antenna way up high. Every afternoon, after coming back from those photography walkabouts, I would spend my time 
listening to the Mexican Red Cross, and at one point I heard them ask for help. You see, throughout large parts of the city, telephone service was disrupted, and they needed people with CB radios to become message relays, linking two separate regions of the city that were too far from each other to be covered by their CB signal range. So I volunteered, and they gave me a code name, and I wish I could remember what it was. I kept a wire-bound notebook next to me, and I still remember the brand of that notebook. It was part of our, our daily life for us in school, Scribe. And I used that notebook to jot down the requests I heard for units of blood, for medical specialists, for emergency vehicles, along with the location of the hospitals or the clinics that had those needs. I would then change channel and contact representatives in other regions of the city and read out those messages. After a few afternoons and evenings doing this, one of the voices on the radio I interacted with a lot said that he would like to meet me and thank me in person for all the relay services I had provided to date. I agreed. I gave him my address, and he said he'd meet me the next afternoon at a certain time. So that next day, I stood outside my building, waiting. A car pulled up, and a young man walked over to the building, and he wasn't really registering my presence as he looked at the intercom panel. And I asked if he was from the Red Cross, and he looked surprised. Ah, oye, ¿y tu hermana está aquí? Which roughly translated as, hey, so, is your sister here? Long story short, he had thought I was a young woman. Apparently, my CB voice wasn't, well, it wasn't masculine sounding as it hit the airwaves. And I had to convince him that I was not joking, that in fact it was me he had been working with for the past few days. And once it finally sank in, he did thank me on behalf of the Mexican Red Cross, but I knew this way thought he'd try to meet with and possibly score with a potentially fetching senorita. So, it has been nearly 32 years since that event, and two things stick in my mind after all that time. One, without fail, whenever there is a small rumbling or a small tremor near me, or when pendant lamps or plants sway near me, whether it's caused by a heavy truck rumbling by or by wind softly flowing through the house, my first thought is always earthquake. This does not happen in a panic or with fear. It is a calm first step to take stock of the situation I'm in. Even after all this time, that reflex has not subsided. It is part of who I am. I lived in a privileged, sheltered life in one of the good neighborhoods of Mexico City. I am aware that my experience was nothing compared to what hundreds of thousands had to go through during that time. But that experience and its memories are woven into who I am now. The second thing that sticks in my mind is the unbelievable resilience of Mexico City and its people during the immediate aftermath. So many people flooded the streets to try to help to volunteer, to scrape their hands and their knees with the rubble all around them. And the feel or the tone of that activity, it felt very different than I think it would feel today. It might sound a little odd to say this, but it had the same emotional tone 
associated when a group of street neighbors rally together to organize a block party or a large feast for the neighborhood. It had a no-nonsense communal cooperative feel without subtexts of self-congratulatory heroism. We had not been infected by the self-broadcasting power of social media or by the self-conscious virus of reality TV yet. And you know, I don't want to romanticize a whole city and its people. I don't want to reinterpret a, a sickening, awful event and attach a narrative that bundles everything together with a neat bow. There was also a lot of corruption exposed. Corruption around lax enforcement of building codes, corruption around cover-up of the real impact of the earthquakes. After all, Mexico was slated to host the World Cup in 1986. But at the same time, we shouldn't let excessive cynicism blind us when a population faces adversity and works not necessarily to overcome it, but to cope with it and live to face another day. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. By the way, you should know that this episode has a companion article on our site where you can find out more about the Mexico City earthquake of 1985 along with some of the photographs I took back then. It also includes other links to content and videos that will give you a sense of that event. Independently of this episode, I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where you can find more podcasts, videos, and written content. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Take your pick. Until the next time, this must be the place. Mm-hmm.